This is a Federal News Network podcast. A change in parent organizations is coming to the National Intelligence University. It's about to move from under the Defense Intelligence Agency and become a part of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. For what this all means, plus a bit of history, the NIU president, J. Scott Cameron. Dr. Cameron, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. Great to be with you. Let's begin with the organizational change. It seems more like a change of ownership than any reorganization of NIU itself. What's exactly going on here? Great question. Uh, This is a really big watershed moment for the institution. The institution's got an almost 60-year history, most of it under the Department of Defense as a military intelligence college. And over the past 10 years, was reinstated as a university serving the broader intelligence enterprise. So our executive agency under DIA began back in 2010. And for the last 10 years, that stewardship has been in partnership with the Director of National Intelligence. And in 2017, Congress commissioned a study to kind of look to see what the future of the institution looked like with ODNI. And and it was advised that having that more direct relationship with our stakeholders and more deeply integrated into the intelligence enterprise was what would give us the strength of uh, our mission for the future. And that's exactly where we are today. Yes, because in the ODNI then, all of the intelligence components then become maybe have equal input into what the needs they have are that could be expressed by NIU offerings. Exactly. However you look at the intelligence enterprise, the intelligence cycle, you see statutory authorities, you see functional disciplines, you see intellectual capital residing in all of these different components. And what we do is we bring all of them together. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. And then our students experience that integrated view and study in depth to look at that. And our research programs are driven by that intellectual capital that we bank from all of those different agencies and departments. And tell us more about NIU. It's not simply a training center for people in the IC. It's a full degree granting institution with a .edu. Tell us more about it and the types of degrees it offers. So as a federal university, like the other federal universities under DOD, our programs are approved by the U.S. Department of Education. The Hill then authorizes me to confer degrees as a federal institution to our students. And then the Middle States Commission on Higher Education, which is the accrediting body for most of the regional institutions here, then make sure that we are delivering education at the standard at which we need to be accredited. And so all of those things kind of come together for us in a way that allows our students to be at a university in a closed community. So, you know, all communities bank knowledge to survive and be successful. And for the parts of us as a classified institution, we're able to bank that intellectual capital and work at that level, at the top secret level, with our students reflecting the requirements and needs of our stakeholders. And that's actually the big part of this change, is being able to be in a close partnership with our stakeholders that way, be accountable to them, and then actually then be accountable to us to send those students for the programs that they believe those knowledge, skills, and abilities reflect the future workforce. And so you can give master's degrees, and what sort of offerings are there? Give us a few specifics. So we have uh, an undergraduate degree, uh, Bachelor of Science in Intelligence, which essentially is if you have 90 credits, if you've gotten most of the way through your degree, in a year we will finish that degree with you. You'll do it as a cohort of individuals with a capstone experience, which is, in my estimation, very close to a, a graduate experience. That degree does a lot to change people's lives in terms of giving them that degree that they've long sought, 
and then it changes their posture in the workforce. Uh, it's just been, there's great stories that come out of watching our students kind of get that. Maybe they're the first person in their family to achieve a degree in higher education. Then we have uh, two master's degree, a master of science and strategic intelligence, and we have a master of science and technology intelligence. And then we offer a couple of certificate programs in which the topics through that, whether they be regional topics, functional topics, people can come in and pick those up. So we are one step on the journey of lifelong learning in the in the IC. So training and education cycles, we're one step, but we're that step often when we have people in their 30s coming in at that point in their career, when we can really make a difference and give them that infusion of education, awaken those leadership skills and get them ready to go back and make the changes for the future that they're gonna lead. We're speaking with J. Scott Cameron. He is president of National Intelligence University. And who can attend? Because I imagine I'm just making this up, but suppose I'm a third-year poli-sci student somewhere, and I'm watching TV the other day, and there's old Vlad Putin there extolling, you know, and yakking away at the press there. And it occurs to me, this is really interesting stuff. And, you know, this small country punches way above its weight. I'd like to get into the field of understanding what's going on internationally and maybe helping my country in some way. Can someone like that find a way into NIU to, as you say, finish with an intelligence degree? So I'll talk to you right now as a third-year poli-sci student at one of our regional universities and within the consortium of universities here in the Washington metro area. So we've met, we're talking, and you just expressed that interest. And I'm going to say, wow, great to hear that. I'd love to see that inspiration of what you want to do and, and make a difference for your country. So there are different ways to get in the intelligence community. We kind of walk through uh, all those opportunities kind of maybe refine uh, where your interests, your talents and abilities might lie. And then we become uh, a perk <laughs> after you've been uh, hired into the government. So you can look forward to a tuition-free educational experience with us uh, after you've been employed, cleared top secret SCI uh, as a federal employee. And that's who our students are. Do you also accept people that are federal employees with clearance, not from the IC, for example, maybe from the State Department? Absolutely. That's actually one of the strengths of the institution is that we have the intelligence community, the broader intelligence enterprise. If you think about after 9-11, I was at USDA early on in my career. So, I mean, there are skiffs there. I mean, <laughs> HHS, uh, the non-Title 50 elements that actually have incredibly important roles in defending infrastructure and health and welfare of, of the U.S. So, yeah, the, the breadth of people who are driven by intelligence but may not be collectors and analyzers of intelligence are still impacted by the policies, the international relations of the country. So we get their perspectives mixed into the classroom and, and our students, 100% of our students will tell you that is exactly one of the big strengths of their education. And at a given time, how many students are enrolled and do they live there? Because not everyone lives in the DC area that might want to attend. Yeah, we're a small institution. We're not a resident institution, although people, you know, for, for many years, our students in uniform will PCS here. So people will come. We are a destination location on people's educational journeys, but we aren't a resident institution. But at the same time, our full-time program, think in the hundreds, and then our part-time program. Uh, so if we have two to 300 full-time students, uh, there'll be twice as many part-time students. And 75% of our students do come part-time on their own time, nights and weekends. 
And tell us about your own background briefly. You said you started at USDA. I'm trying to imagine what happens in a skiff at USDA, maybe a, a new form of cattle that eats carbon dioxide instead of produces it. Wouldn't that be revolutionary? But tell us how you came to this position. So my journey was as a, an academic in the 80s and 90s. Actually, my background is in plant physiological genetics. I was actually uh, a bit of an Indiana Jones plant explorer for a while, uh, looking at photosynthesis, basically trying to feed the third world. The second half of my career is trying to protect the entire world. <laughs> and th that high consequence uh, science and high consequence national security. So that's been kind of my theme. I came to DC in 2000, right before 9-11. And then after 9-11 was recruited over when there was an influx of science going into the IC after 9-11, after Iraq, WMD. I mean, basically the idea was let's broaden the DNA of our science component. I came in on a sabbatical from USDA, working for the Secretary of Agriculture as his national security advisor and briefer, started at CIA and, and moved over to the National Counterterrorism Center and spent 13 years kind of looking at counter WMD issues there. Wow. And uh, what kind of reaction do you get at college president types of meetings and forums? It's great. The local consortium here, of, uh, we're a small institution. We're a bit unique. But all of my colleagues here, and a shout out to the consortium of Washington Metro Agency Universities here and the other presidents, we meet on a regular basis. And I learned so much from them. It's really humbling to be, you know, with Georgetown American, GW, all of them sitting in one room talking about the challenge that we do have in common. We all care deeply about education and the future of education. But then you're lucky on one hand, you don't have to deal with something like the Harvard General Studies faculty. Okay, so, you know, the, the, the beauty of what we do uh, as an institution is we are very, very focused on national security in a way that gives our students breath to go back to the mission and they study the way they perform on, you know, in their mission day to day. Jay Scott Cameron is president of National Intelligence University. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. 
So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, Shane, and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deterred me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? 
You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've 
got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.